when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So That Happened is sponsored by Mile IQ, the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that everything is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Take Mile IQ for a free 40-drive trial today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week witnessed an awful terrorist attack in Brussels, raising the critical foreign policy question. Are we bombing people enough? And are we being mean enough to Muslims at home? The answers will make you sad. Is Donald Trump a fascist? We asked a history professor, and it turns out he may be closer to Jefferson Davis than Benito Mussolini. Comforting. And way more Republicans have been turning out to vote in primary elections than Democrats. Does that matter? We talked to an expert, and the answer is annoying. Also, Bernie Sanders is still running for president, even though it's hopeless. We'll explain why. Jason Lincolns is off this week, so I'm Arthur Delaney. And I'm Zach Carter. And here's what happened first. And we're back. Welcome. I'm Arthur Delaney with Zach Carter and Elise Foley. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. So 2016, kind of slow this week. It seemed like things were happening, but nothing super unpredictable. Anything jump out at you, Elise? Well, I uh, wrote about the Arizona primaries, uh, but they sort of went according to what the polls said that they would do. What happened? Hillary Clinton won, the Mm -hmm. Democrats. And um, Donald Trump won the Republicans. But there were no surprises. And, and there, are, there were some problems with uh, with voting for people. People had really super long lines, problems with actually getting to vote in Arizona. So I had a lot of angry people saying, oh, Hillary Clinton didn't really win in Arizona. Uh, Bernie Sanders won, sending me emails. But Hillary Clinton But yeah, is that a preview won. of some kind of like voter ID, vote suppression problem that we'll have in the future? Possibly. They um, cut down the number of voting locations from what they used to have. So hopefully uh, in terms of democracy and allowing people to vote, they'll add some in the fall. That doesn't, that's not very democratic. Let's have no. fewer places to vote. No. Why? What, what is the deal there? Anyway. I think so, it's pretty obvious what the deal is there. They're trying to keep people from voting. So the uh, it looks like the result of the whole primary process is, is pretty much in the oven. And we're just waiting for the conventions to, uh, and we expect to know what pops out. Or do we? I think the, the Republican side is still slightly up in the air uh, in that we don't know if Donald Trump will completely seal up the nominee, nomination before the convention. We, it seems pretty obvious he will have far more delegates than anybody else in that field. But we may be in a situation where he doesn't get enough to, to secure the nomination absent a, a so brokered convention. He's more than halfway to the total number of delegates that he needs, which is a majority. Uh, but if he doesn't have that, even though he'll have more than the other guys, the rules are that there will be a, a second vote of the delegates yep. 
And at that point, they're sort of free to pick whoever they want. So they can either go with Trump or with whoever else is in, I think, the top three candidates in the in the field uh, who who've received delegates at that point. Um, so, you know, most of the candidates who are not Trump and Cruz will be gone by then. I mean, are already gone. I believe Kasich is still formally in the race. But who knows what could happen? I mean, yes, all, yes. All, all hell could could break up, could, could break loose on the convention floor. Um you know, Trump incites violence everywhere. We'll have a whole, whole bunch of angry Trump supporters there. So the convention is going to be really interesting if he doesn't win outright. And now there's lobbying by campaigns directly at the delegates. Like uh, John Kasich sent someone to South Dakota to try to persuade the delegates of the Republican Party there to break for Kasich if it doesn't happen on the first go for Donald Trump. Well, and, and people who have already dropped out, like, you know, Marco Rubio did win a lot of delegates, you know. Yeah, uh, where do they go? What happens to them? A lot of them have to have to continue to, to cast their votes for uh, for Rubio, but some are, are are unbound once the candidate drops out. So, But, you know, where do they go? Do they go to, do they go to Kasich? Do they go to Trump? Do they go to, um, uh, who's the other guy, Cruz? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not clear. It, it, it's going to be a real mess. So yeah, I mean, it depends on the state's rules, the state Republican Party's rules. Some people do have to vote the first time for whoever they were allocated to. Some people get to do whatever they want. And then so that second round of votes is probably going to be the most interesting to see what people decide to do once they're free to do whatever they want. Now, we had a kind of quiet week in terms of people being punched in the face at Donald Trump events, <laughs> which is good. It's a relief. However, Trump started the week by repeatedly suggesting that there would be a riot if at the convention he's denied the nomination, even though he will have more delegates heading in. Contrary to the rules, which are clear that you don't win that way. You need to have a majority. So anyway. Don't you think, though, there is something to the argument that if they do try and pull off going against what a majority of Republican voters have decided, that there is some. I mean, I see why Trump supporters would be mad, right? Yeah. They they voted for him. He is getting a majority of delegates uh, or, or not, a, a not a major, not a majority more than everybody else. So I can see why they'd be mad. I don't think that they should turn violent, but well, I tr- get it. I get the Trump's rhetoric implies that it would be uh, against the rules, which it wouldn't. It would not. It would right. if you don't get a majority, then you go to a you, you basically do a runoff. Yeah, <laughs> and if, it, it if would you be... are telling people that this is not allowed, and then it's happening anyway, that's really the way that you incite people to get really, really upset. Right. But the, to be clear, like that, that could happen and that would be not against the rules or the law or anything like that. But yeah, Donald Trump is uh, clearly trying to foment violence or at least. And, and it's particularly scary. Uh, Robert Kuttner wrote this for the American Prospect, noting that like, you know, Ohio is an open carry state. So you're going to have all, and it's a Republican convention. So you're going to have a whole bunch of angry Trump supporters there with guns. That just seems like a terrible situation. I am not going to that convention center. No chance. And it's, he does, <laughs> and he does this by saying, you know, I would tell them not to, but he uses the word but. I'm not saying a riot would be good, but you're going to have one. I won't lead them, but you know, they'll be right. so angry. So what? Let's let's talk about the Democrats. Much less violent, as uh, just as uh, we our own um, Dana, Dana Dana Liebelson reported that there is less violence at Bernie Sanders rallies yeah. than at Trump rallies. <laughs> Surprise! Really? Yeah. Fact check. And yet he's still in the race, even though I think it's pretty clear uh, Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee. His mathematical path is extremely thin. He basically has to win every state by like eighty percent. So Zach, what's Bernie Sanders doing right now? So. 
Right I, now, right at the second. <laughs> He's probably drinking some coffee and talking about we, the 1%. Now listen, we don't want to get, get tripped up talking about when right now is. <laughs> Good point. Right now is whenever you're listening to this, dear listener. <laughs> But but given that it's Bernie Sanders, he's probably talking about the 1%, whatever time this is. Oligarchy. Uh, right. So, look, I think he's going to stay in this in this race until the convention. And even though he doesn't have a chance of actually winning anymore, I mean, he, mathematically, it is there's like a one-tenth of 1% chance that he could win. But it's almost certainly not going to happen. Um, the reason he's staying in is because he wants to amass as many delegates as possible. So at the Democratic convention... Hillary Clinton's winning team has got to offer him something on the Democratic Party's platform in order to encourage his delegates to support her and unite the party because the Democratic Party needs all of its supporters to be together if they're going to win in November. Now, is this what you think is happening or are people saying that that's the plan? This is there. There is reporting that suggests this is this is going on. Um, Bernie Sanders campaign is not saying that openly because they want people to continue to come out and vote for him so that he has as many delegates as possible um, in each state. And so you saw you know, he lost in Arizona, but he, he ran up a pretty big margin in Utah and Idaho this this way. I think it was about 80, 20 each of those states, 75, 25, something like that. So that gives him, even though he's going to lose, you know, if he comes in with 40% of the delegates, that's a much bigger haul than if he comes in with 20%. So that means he can get some, he can extract more concessions at the at the convention. Now, but hasn't Hillary Clinton already bent over backward to adopt Bernie Sanders' stances on many issues? Like, what do you think he would be going for? Well, you could you could talk to the the campaign about you know who who appointments might be you know uh, who's who's your treasury secretary going to be what types of uh, what types of legislation are you going to prioritize? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's the big question, right? Is what policies he's are she's he's already in the race pushed her so far to the left. So what exactly would he be hoping to get? I mean, is is my biggest question there. And it's not uh, it doesn't seem likely to me that he would want to be the vice president. No, I don't think so. Would he I mean, what about well, a cabinet? He would, but she wouldn't do what it. What cabinet yeah. positions would be good for Bernie? Department of Labor? Veterans Affairs. Interesting. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. But, I mean, I don't think he, I don't think he necessarily wants to leave the Senate. He's, he's a pretty effective, you know, super liberal senator in, in the Senate. So it's not clear to me that it benefits any Democratic president to get him out of there. But, you know, do you want your Treasury Secretary to be Elizabeth Warren? Hmm. You know, mm. th- things like that, that that, you know, Clinton probably is not going to do on her own. Uh, you know, may, may, maybe we could consider some more some more progressive nominees. Now, who knows wh- whether a deal like that actually matters once Clinton is elected? And I think it's likely she would be elected if she's the nominee. But that's what's that's the calculus. All right. We're going to leave it there. Be right back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit 
yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, here we are at the end of March, lurking not too far down the calendar is April 15th, tax times. And for the millions of Americans whose job involves driving, it means it's time to break out all of your mileage records from the past year to get that hard-earned tax deduction. How are you keeping those records, by the way? Post-it notes, a written journal? Are you recalling it from memory? Let's make this year the last year you do that by getting the MileIQ tracker app for your smartphone today. MileIQ is the solution you've been looking for. MileIQ is the number one mileage tracker app and is trusted by millions of Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. No more scribbles on post-it notes, no more guesswork at the end of a long day. MileIQ is easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work. Just install it and it runs in the background recording your trips. It's your calculator and your memory, and its easy interface is a breeze to use, letting you focus on what's important. MileIQ is one of the few apps in the App Store that actually makes you money. It's no wonder that so many people use MileIQ, and it's not a surprise that the app has earned a ton of five-star ratings in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. In fact, the folks at MileIQ are so confident you'll join them that they're making a special offer to you. Just text HAPPEN to 31996, and you can start a 40-drive free trial. And if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. We're back. It's me, Arthur Delaney, joined by my colleague, Zach Carter. Hi. And my other colleague, Jessica Schulberg. Hello. Jessica covers uh, foreign policy for the Huffington Post. And one of the important foreign policy things that happened this week is an awful terrorist attack in Brussels that killed a lot of people. And so we're looking at political fallout from that. Immediately, Ted Cruz seized the moment. What did he say? He says that this shows that we need to surveil Muslim communities to, to keep track of them and make sure they're not plotting a similar attack on the U.S. Now, a lot of things to unpack from this cruise moment. One is we already do surveil Muslim communities, don't we? I mean, aren't they already? Well, uh, the AP got a Pulitzer a few years back for writing a really good story about NYPD doing just that. And it was found extremely illegal. <laughs> right. So oh, the New York Police Department had a massive program where they were like infiltrating mosques, mosques and, and wiretapping oh, on these yeah. people for no real reason other right. than suspicion of Muslims in general. Right. But Which is essentially what he's saying to do. Right. But uh, and, I, and what I'm asking is, doesn't our counter-terror operation at the national level effectively already do that same thing? That the NYPD was doing. Yes, in New York. I mean they would say it's not as sweeping. That it's not just being a being Muslim or being a mosque as grounds for surveillance, but it, that they have a, a credible reason to be tracking a certain individual or a certain site. And how how credible that claim is is a little ambiguous. Ted Cruz, though, seemed like he wanted to make it more aggressive. Like he wanted special Muslim police. Policing Muslim <laughs> neighborhoods. He was trying to out Islamophobia. Uh, exactly. Donald Trump is yeah. what was happening. And, uh, and it's hard to do that when Trump is called to just ban Muslim people from entering the country. Yeah, we, no can't, do, we can't do better than that. Uh, but, but the if, thing if, is, it's like Donald Trump is like not so good on the specifics. So you sort of see Cruz being like, well, if I can't get to the right of Trump, if I can't 
out Islamophobe him. Let me let me hammer down on some details and maybe kind of bring over some of his supporters that are like, oh, that's a great idea. But, you know, how where you have a mass deportation of Muslims, like everybody knows that's and complicated. Come on, and if you just have if you're just like flagrantly spying on people just because they're Muslim, that sounds like a great way to make Muslim people angry at the American government. I mean, I would be angry if someone was just like, you know what, we're going to start spying on all the Zacks. Everybody named this. Zach is going to be followed around by some weirdo. Uh, it would piss me off. I would start to hate that authority figure. What is the broader foreign policy establishment saying in the wake of the Brussels terrorist attack? One thing that's sort of interesting that I was talking to my Belgian friend about is it's hard for, I think, Americans and most people to afford ISIS uh, any degree of rationality. Um, but at the same time, all the attacks that they've launched, they've set are in retaliation for airstrikes against them. And so far, it's true. Countries that have been attacked, Paris, Belgium, et cetera, have been engaged in this air war um, against them in Iraq and Syria. And so that sort of brings into the question of if you have a small country like Belgium with a, what, they didn't have a government for 580 days. They have like six different parallel governments operating in different parts of the country that speak different languages and are pretty clearly not up to the task of securing their own borders, tracking every single intelligence lead that they have on a foreign fighter who's returning to their country. So if they don't have that defense mechanism, then should they really be putting this target on their back and launching airstrikes? My friend was arguing that, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea. You know, the U.S. can go abroad and bomb the world, but we also have pretty good intel and defense systems to protect us from retaliation. You mentioned ISIS, and obviously ISIS, like, it was us! And these people had an ISIS flag. But doesn't this also show that anyone could say that, you know, pretend that yeah. they're ISIS and that ISIS could pretend that anyone who does something like this is under their direction? Right. And then what's also sort of important to realize is that even if you have one guy who's sort of, let's say, the mastermind of the attack who is extremely radicalized, maybe went to Syria, maybe joined up with ISIS, came back to Europe... It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody involved in the attack is part of ISIS or is that radicalized. I mean, I think you saw with the Paris attacks, the two guys that picked up the guy that ended up fleeing at the last minute, you know, they were just from a neighborhood in Belgium that's, you know, pretty marginalized, majority Muslim, has never really been integrated into the community, um, very unified, very off limits to law enforcement. And it's like, yeah, sure, like, I'll come pick you up. And all of a sudden you're, you're a part of this huge international terror crime. Uh, Kurt Eichenwald had a column this week where he wrote about how this isn't like Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden mm -hmm. in the old days where you had these bearded students of Islam right. who uh, you know are really pouring through the Koran. This is like young guys. It was, it was like odd. It was like, it's, yeah, is he complaining that millennials are doing <laughs> terrorism? Millennials are doing terrorism all wrong. <laughs> But but uh, you the guys point have the discipline to study yeah. the Quran before you bomb civilian right. targets. That was where my mind wandered while I was reading. But the point is, yeah. it, it's another thing that goes to show mm -hmm. how easy it is for random people to do this kind of thing. Which sort of leads you to the inevitable uh, assertion you have to make that you can't completely insulate yourself from a terror attack, just as you can't completely insulate yourself from some crazy guy in Colorado shooting up a Planned Parenthood. You know, any individual who is upset and marginalized is pretty capable of getting their hands on a weapon. And, you know, like we said, airports are secure. After you get past the security checkpoint, you can still get into the entry terminal. You can still get into a subway system. I mean, at, at the same time, though, I feel like our public figures, you know, it's, it's not just Republicans who are making, you know, very bold promises to do terrible things in response to these, to these types of attacks. I mean... 
Hillary Clinton uh, had kind of a funny tweet yesterday, uh, earlier this week um, when she, she tweeted out her like three point plan to <laughs> destroy ISIS. And n- number beat one ISIS. was like, beat them. <laughs> number <laughs> two was keep beating them. And number three was ha- be, be happy about how much you beat them. So one and two are um, both put a bomb on it. Basically. Right. Uh, and, and then she gave a, a more detailed speech uh, in Stanford. Um, and it, it, it's, it just seemed to be a, a, a sort of a lot of vague platitudes about mm-hmm. using American power and mm-hmm. force and leadership. Um, it, it, <laughs> does that make any sense? I mean, I mean, I, what what is the United States doing against ISIS right now? And what are what are the, the let's say, more assertive uses of force that are that are plausible at this stage? I mean, the, the two most obvious, more assertive uses of forces would either be to be uh less judicious in our airstrikes, as in uh, greater acceptance to kill civilians in the pursuit of militants. More bombs. Which has an obvious uh, blowback, and I I think you could argue that the Obama administration's maybe already erred too far on that side, especially as you see increasing willingness to do these large-scale attacks in Yemen Mm -hmm. and Somalia. Um, And then the other opportunity option is to put troops on the ground, which inevitably leads to a 12-year occupation of a country in which you nurture an insurgency that's weakened and, and hiding, but is outwaiting you to leave. I, bl- I believe a, uh, they were before. a great general named Dwight Eisenhower <laughs> once said that small wars are effective and good <laughs> <laughs> and tend not to escalate. So I don't see why we don't do that. So pre- President Obama, mm-hmm. at the time this was unfolding and people were watching for the political reaction, was in Cuba Uh-oh. at a baseball game in the state, yeah. not my president. Mingling and, with the communist he was, terrorists. Yeah, and he was like wearing sunglasses and people were saying, President Obama, why don't you go home and do something presidential right now? And his response I found interesting. He mm-hmm. said, that's what the terrorists want. They don't want us to go about our, our daily lives. And, uh, you know, they want us to live in fear and and uh, not act like things are okay. Well, he was on, a, I mean, the baseball game was part of a foreign policy mission. Yeah, I mean, I mean people <laughs> are trying to act like this is him just, like, shooting the shit on a golf trip. Like, if he was just on a golf trip for fun, he probably would have come back to Washington. But he was there on this huge diplomatic endeavor to undo yeah. decades and decades of lack of diplomatic relations. Well, now, jo- George W. Bush also said, you know, go to Disney World. Right. But then he quit golf. Did quit golf. Golf sucks. Golf is so boring. I don't know why Obama <laughs> likes golfing so much. But I mean, it, get, it gets back to what your point is, which is Obama's been really, for better or for worse, completely unwilling to nurture this sort of desire to have uh, uh, a strong display of force in response to all these terror attacks. And to him, it's it's saying, like, yes, it's very sad that 30 people died. It is also not the hugest national security threat, and I'm not going to... Um, exaggerate the threat that it poses, which I think is important to remember because when you look at, I mean, it, it feels constant. You feel like Paris was just the other day and we're still recovering from it. And all yeah. of a sudden, Belgium's hit and then they're saying, you know, there's more people on the loose, more and more foreign fighters are coming back to Belgium. It just feels like this complete and total onslaught. But when you, you know, look back at the numbers and you realize you're more likely to die by drowning in your bathtub or getting stung by a bee than by getting blown up by an Islamic terrorist, it's, 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 somewhat understandable why Obama refuses to sort of indulge in this. The hysterical response you get from Ted Cruz and Donald Trump after these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. uh, to me, has put Obama's calmness in starker relief. I mean, it's always been part of the Obama brand, like, I'm really relaxed. Right. And then right now... Not an emotional decision. Yeah, and right now it seems especially so. Well, and, and and that, to some extent, I think masks 
the the scale of the violence that the U.S. is you know, involved exactly. in the U.S. response. We are bombing them every single day. So to act like there's sort of a a non-hysteric um, right. approach, you know. I mean, and and we did, as you mentioned earlier, begin to accept a higher number of civilian casualties in those bombing attacks in response to these terrorist attacks. Right. Uh, which is, you know, potentially that. It, that every time I see either Republican or Hillary Clinton say that we need to use more force essentially to deal with this, mm-hmm. it may be the case that we do. But I don't think any of them ever want to come to terms with the fact that the use of force itself breeds more backlash against the United States. Right. Um, and, and lastly, this this wasn't refugees. No. Right. And one thing that is immediately uh, brought up is is what well, we've got to stop why with we the, can't refugees. Let the refugees. <laughs> Right, but yeah. the, it wasn't refugees. No, because it's really, 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 really hard to come, well, definitely to the U.S. as a refugee. Probably a little bit easier in Europe, but this was not refugees. It still wasn't. Europe. There's still millions of people with nowhere to go. Right. And, and the United States has, had been talking about moving to, moving up like a few thousand. Um, that, that it, which, which we haven't even, I mean, it's, it's a, a, f- a festering problem <laughs> that we will leave for another time, much like the rest of the world. Thank you both for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, here with... Arthur Arthur Delaney. Arthur wasn't paying attention. And uh, we're joined on the phone by a professor of history at the University of Southern California, uh, Professor Steve Ross. How are you, Steve? I'm fine today, thank you. Well, thanks for being with us. We're talking about, a, I think, a rather unpleasant subject that seems to be uh, increasingly unavoidable in the 2016 campaign, um, and that subject is fascism uh, and, and whether that label applies to Donald Trump, and if so, what that means. Um, so, Professor, uh, let's start. I mean, what, what is fascism when we, when we use that word? What are we saying? Well, you know, people throw it around, but if we're going to look at it historically, it really goes back to 1919 when uh, Benito Mussolini founded his uh, National Fascist Party in Italy. And the best way to put it is what are the characteristics, because various fascist movements have specifics, but the general characteristic is, uh, if I can like give you the half a dozen key ones, first, it's always anti-communist and anti-liberal that fascists in uh, Italy and then Germany uh, and the United States, which had its own fascist movements really starting around 1933 with the what we call the Silver Shirts, what they all had in common is uh, vehemently anti-red and also anti-liberal. They're hyper-nationalist, 
you know, that this nation, whether it's Italy, Germany, the United States, is the greatest nation in the world. At the same time, fascists usually, while they talk about hypernationalism, they also say that that hypernationalism is being undermined by the decline of community, by uh, humiliation, by victimhood. Uh, the kind, not dissimilar to kind of things, you know, Trump's talking about the decline of America. Uh, also then, hand in hand with that is, why is there a decline? Because there are outside interests that are undermining the fabric of the body politic. And that could be communists, but also uh, it always has a strong racial edge, so that fascists went after Jews, blacks, gypsies, anyone of color. And finally, you have a kind of state domination of business, where the government is essentially telling business there's a close partnership because business realizes if they're not partners, they're going to be taken over or they're going to be tossed aside. So those are some of the, I would say, key aspects of, of uh, fascism historically. Uh, Professor Ross, one of the things that people point to when they're calling Trump a fascist is violence, and it's the incidence of violence at his rallies, his threat to, uh, you know, that there will be a riot if he doesn't get the nomination. Those things really get people throwing the F word around. Do you, are they not part of the historical list of ingredients? Yes, but uh, it's more complicated than you suggest because there could be there could be violence anywhere. What's the context of violence is really the question you want to ask. And in Trump's case, here's what I would tell you: if in the next few weeks he starts having security people show up in colored uh, outfits and shirts with specific colors, then be very, very, very afraid because this is exactly what the fascists did is. It's one thing to have incidents of violence, as we're seeing at the rallies, and it's another to begin to institutionalize it as part of your campaign. And that's what would really, I will be honest, that's what would freak me out. Because what uh, listeners may not know is when Mussolini started his fascists, they all wore a uniform of a black shirt. In Germany in the 1920s, when Hitler started his movement, they were called the brown shirts and they wore brown tops. And in America, the day that Hitler declared, uh, well, the day he became Reich Chancellor, which was uh, at the end of January 1933, that day in America, William Dudley Pelly said, I'm going to create the Silver Shirts. And he created a American fascist organization. And all of them were marked by their security forces dressing in a uniform, and beating up any kind of protesters. Well, Donald Trump's got that little hat, but I don't think I've seen the people involved in fights like wearing it uniform style. Yeah, I think we need to be careful when we toss around words like fascist. And what I would say is Donald Trump is certainly on the road to fascism. He is right now doing things that fascists do. Hyper-nationalism, anti-liberalism, the decline of America, let's make America great again. Uh, and instead of singling out blacks and Jews, he singled out the uh, Islamic community. So I think people have reason to be afraid that this man is heading down that road. So what other, what sorts of things do you see in, um, 
in, in let's say the, the the country or the community rather than necessarily at the at the leadership stage when these these movements have come forward there there have to be some sort of social conditions um, that are that are more or less sympathetic sir for you here's what I think if we pull back <clears throat> and we ask ourselves in really broad perspective you know not obsessed with the moment but in a broader perspective what what's going on why are so many people flocking to Donald Trump. Uh, it, you know, it's why is the Lindsey Graham was just on Trevor Noah last night, and uh, my wife and I were commenting. You know, what kind of drugs is he taking? Because he was totally—I've never seen Lindsey Graham like this. Totally unfiltered, just attacking Trump like crazy. You got some pet pills. <laughs> yeah, even though he's endorsed Cruz, as his basic answer was anyone but Trump. What I think if we pull back and we say, you know, no fascist leader becomes a leader unless they have a following. What's going on? I, I think what we're seeing now is, I, I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but what we're seeing is uh, what I would call the second civil war. And that is Trump supporters are part of, even though they're not consciously, I think, thinking this way, in the same way, in, 19, in 1860, the Civil War, historians have talked about the Civil War as a preemptive counter-revolution. What do we mean by that? Remember, it's the South that fired on the North. It was the South that seceded from the North. Why did they secede? Mainly going back to historian Eugene Genovese, it's a clash between two civilizations, one slave, one free. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln wins the presidential election, and for the first time in American history, a president can get elected without getting a single electoral vote from the South, which meant that Southerners, particularly young slaveholders who were the leaders of secession, looked ahead to the future, and what they saw is a future in which the North, Midwest, and West could constantly keep electing presidents, which would mean that they could begin uh, making Supreme Court appointments sound familiar. And they understood that if there were enough Supreme Court appointments, the court would eventually one day outlaw slavery, as well as uh, the House of Representatives would eventually become part of the Republic, then Republican Party, which was anti-slavery or at least anti-expansion. And so they saw that in the next 10 to 20 years, slavery was going to be abolished, and therefore... In order to protect themselves, they pulled out of the Union. One might argue that right now what we're seeing is a country where who is who, when you look at the Trump rallies, what do you see? You see seas of white faces. You, I, I, I can't remember seeing a single person of color at any Trump rally. And what you have is a kind of preemptive anger of, the white, of a certain part of the white population that understands within the next decade or two Anglo, the WASP America, white Anglo-Saxon America, is going to be a minority in this country, and they're angry about that. And so Trump is the leader, you know, he's the Jefferson Davis of his own time. Now, what about, I mean, because it's not just that his, his, uh, his supporters are overwhelmingly white. Um, we, we also hear a lot about how they're white and specifically working class um, voters. Do, do you think that there are economic uh, motivations at, at play here as well? Well, yes, because I think the economics are showing you uh, the economic discontent goes left and right because you have the same people on the left flocking to Bernie Sanders. In other words, I think a lot of Americans 
realize that we as a country have been screwed over by Wall Street. We've been screwed over by big money. We've been screwed over by people like the Koch brothers. We've been screwed over by the lack of campaign finance reform, uh, something that the, uh, a, much, uh, a, a decade or two ago uh, someone like John McCain was in favor of. Uh, and people are angry. And those who are on the right are flocking to uh, Donald Trump. Those on the left are flocking to Bernie Sanders. Professor Ross, I want to clarify one thing. When you call Trump anti-liberal, I, I think you're referring to a, a more historical context for that word rather than, uh, like, liberals, you know. You're not like liberal Democrat, like a liberal state, a liberal government. All right, great. Well, uh, Professor Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. All right, we'll see you soon. Okay, bye-bye. And we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, here with Arthur Delaney. And we're joined today by Jordan Shu, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, who's done a lot of research on voter turnout. And uh, Jordan, I want to ask you, I think Donald Trump's maybe most consistent boast in the 2016 uh, primary season has been the millions of people who have come out to vote for him. Um, do we, is there any correlation between a, a candidate's sort of primary results, their, their vote total, and, and a general election performance? So what the research has shown is that the actual relationship between the kind of numbers of independent voters that a candidate polls in the primary election and the kind of support that went to the general election, it's generally a mixed result. Um, if we look at 2008, for example, um, everyone knows this is a fantastic year for Democrats and was a year that um, they were able to pull out quite a few general elections, or sorry, um, independent voters. And yet, if you look at the difference in independence between the Democrats and the Republicans that year, despite that huge difference in turnout, these were very um, modest numbers. And in fact, Obama obviously went on to win the general election by quite a substantial amount, um, which would far sort of outpace what the different independent turnout would have suggested in the primary election. So are independents the ones giving Donald Trump these big primary turnout numbers, or is it across the board uh, with uh, uh, Republican voters as well? Well, that's what's so surprising, is that, you know, obviously this has been a huge boast for Trump, that he's claimed that, you know, he's been able to sort of storm the Republican gates because of this mass support of independent voters. And yet, if you look at exit polling, um, he's actually only winning a plurality of these voters, which suggests that, by implication, a majority of independent voters in Republican primaries are voting for someone not named Donald Trump. Um, more significantly, if you look at first-time voters, um, now unfortunately the first-time voter question has only been asked in a handful of states so far, um, but if you look at first-time voters, even these folks, by a majority, are not voting for Donald Trump. So, Jordan, what if, if, if there doesn't seem to be you know, a general trend on, on the effects of, of particularly ind independent voters. What, what sorts of things can you learn from, uh, from, from primary voter data? So primary voter data can give us an indication of enthusiasm in terms of what we like to call the activist class. 
you know, how popular are you with the most committed partisans um, during the primary election. And that and turnout in that sense can give us a sense of how popular a candidate is with sort of the, the base of the base, if you put it away. And, and how is Trump looking with those people? Um, well, Trump, uh, in various polls, has some of the highest uh, disapproval ratings of any of the Republican candidates, which might suggest um, some trouble going forward. And I don't think that's a huge surprise. And, you, and everybody looks to the establishment with this sort of wary eye, in particular, on the Republican side. Um, but if you look, consider his disapproval ratings, then this sort of constant talk, not just with the establishment, but with you know, leaders of the conservative movement, of trying to, quote-unquote, dethrone Trump uh, at a contested convention, well, then those, don't, uh, those um, plans don't seem quite as surprising. So th- uh, do his disapproval ratings suggest that if, uh, even if he did have high turnout, that the other candidates will wind up with high turnout as well? Like, is, is Trump driving turnout for all the candidates? And in a general election, if voters are enthusiastic for Trump, does that get matched by voters who just enthusiastically hate his guts? To be honest, that's a, an unanswered question as of, uh, as of yet. Um, it's certainly very possible. Um, in the past, there's been some research um, on uh, an extended contested primary effect or um, a sour grapes effect, if you were, um, which is this idea, I said, well, from 2008, the, um, the Hillary Clinton Pumas, the party unity, my fleet. You can say ass. <laughs> for, our reader, for our listeners who don't remember, in 2008, uh, there were many Hillary Clinton supporters who just swore they would never, ever support Barack Obama. Wait, um, wait, did they have an effect? Well, uh, well, that's what I was going to say, was that um, what the research winds up showing is this was a modest, if um, neg- if not negligible effect. Interesting. Um, so the question, uh, we do know that anxiety can be as powerful a motivator for voter turnout as enthusiasm. Well, so speaking of in- anxiety then, um, we, you know, I, I think most people who have been following the turnout trends have noticed that there are uh, significantly more Republicans coming out to vote in the primaries than, than Democrats. Um, is is that something that Democrats should be worried about, or or is this, uh, or, or are there other explanations that that maybe aren't troubling? So, and this is by no means tending to hedge. Um, we do have to remember that 2008 was, of course, I and mean, this has been said by a million other people besides me. 2008 was an extraordinary year for the Democrats, but beyond that sort of um, level of enthusiasm that we saw in 2008. If you look at the overall trend, Democratic turnout in primary elections had actually been on a long-term decline since the 80s. Now, the Democrats had always had higher uh, presidential primary turnout than the Republicans for quite some time. In the 80s and the 90s, Democrats routinely saw 20, 18, 17 percent turnout, which, whereas it was holding around 12 percent for the Republicans for quite some time. And that had been declining consistently until it popped a bit, obviously, in 2008. So when you look at it in that sense, 2008 seems much more like an outlier than an indication that Democrats had to beat, per se, this time around. All right. Uh, my last question for you, Jordan, is how fickle is the science here? Like, I, you know, I've heard that uh, bad weather could affect turnout in a big way in a given area. So uh, how, how much confidence 
do uh, researchers have when they're looking at turnout patterns and, and trying to predict what will happen? So in, it's true that whether it can affect turnout data, if you want um, really ridiculous, there's some um, exploratory research that suggests that um, a home baseball team losing uh, can cause uh, negative election effects. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it was actually a basketball team, uh, a beloved basketball team losing a recent game can actually have negative Election. Why? Because people, people are like, my team lost, my life is worthless, I'm not going to vote? Uh, I actually think it can be worse than that in some cases. I think uh, some uh, researchers found that my team lost, I'm in a bad mood, and I'm going to take it out on my office holders. Uh, is generally how the, the line of reasoning goes. Oh, so people vote, but they vote against incumbents? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> So I, mean, I bring this up by way of saying, yes, we know that a huge amount of variables enter into how people consider um, who to vote for, in fact, whether to even vote. Um, and our goal is not to demonstrate that we can sort of explain or control away every single one of these variables for every single voter on the planet. Our goal is to be able to generalize as much as possible to the electorate. All right. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by Professor Steve Ross of the University of Southern California, Jordan Shu of the University of Wisconsin, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jessica Schulberg, and Elise Foley. This podcast was sponsored by Mile IQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping millions of Americans make more money. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about on So That Happened, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.